This is the Employee Experience in Education podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brandstetter. On this episode, we'll speak with Jared Pennington, principal of Amy Beverland Elementary School in the Metropolitan School District of Lawrence Township. Mr. Pennington will share the importance of relationships in the employee experience, what Gandhi had to say about followers, and the power of empowering teachers. You don't want to miss this episode. All right, Mr. Pennington. Well, I appreciate you being here today. Um, I know you've done a lot of wonderful work um, at Amy Beverland Elementary School. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you personally and professionally, and why did you choose to become an educator? Thank you, Eric. So um, first of all, personally, that's the foundation of who I am, um, would be my family. I am a proud husband um, of my wife, Christy, for, for over 20 years, and I have two adult age young men who are already out in the workforce and they make me proud each and every day. Um, In terms of how I became an educator, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life as a grown up when I went into my senior year of high school. Um, And I wanted to try a lot of different things. I saw an opportunity to do cadet teaching at the elementary school that I grew up in. Um, Knowing that as a student, I didn't really feel like my experience and my education up until that point uh, was a positive. And I thought this could be an opportunity for me to learn more about why that is and um, how I could maybe contribute to a child not feeling the way I did. Uh, What I actually found out was it was more about how I operated within the school rather than how the educators operated with me in it. Um, But ultimately, when when I was in my elementary school and I was helping kids, I, I felt really, really empowered. Um, I also, that feeling, as cliche as it is, making a difference, I felt that um, I was able to do that in a short period of time and be a role model um, for for those kids. And and then I realized, well, what I could do this for a living someday. This could be what I do. And I could have an opportunity to also follow my love of sports and be a coach. And then that just led into later in life becoming an an administrator pursuing becoming an administrator, talking myself into that being the, the route that was the right next step, um, seeing that it was no different than when I realized that coaching kids could, is a passion and that I could coach and impact adults in the very same way. So that's what led me to the School of Education, and, and, and here I am. Yeah, it's funny. So I became an administrator in the same building that you taught, and I remember some of the younger ones coming up to me saying, Mr. Pennington, you have hair now. Why is that? How was that? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not Mr. Pennington. I'm somebody new. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yes. So you were a teacher for about 10 years before you decided to go into administration, right? So what, what made you want to have, you had mentioned coaching, you know, before coaching students, making a, a big impact on students. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about going into administration and what about administration? What about leading others was really calling you? So for me, and, and I don't know if this is the experience a lot of others have, I think some people go into becoming teaching with an end in mind of being an administrator. For me, it was all about teaching. It was all about in the moment. Um, I had a lot of colleagues that I worked with at the school that you referenced who would make comments like, you would make a great administrator. Is that what's next for you? And my response was, thank you, but actually, no, I had no thought of that, nor do I have any plan of that. Um, and then I heard that enough over the years and and thought, and, and as I increased my leadership 
capacity as a teacher because I was empowered by some great principles um, and found that I, I actually enjoyed, even on a small scale, leading a school improvement team or something of that nature, committee-based at the building level. I, I realized that, okay, maybe this is something that I could do on a larger scale. Maybe this would be an opportunity for, um, to, for me to increase my circle of influence and impact even more people. And so I ended up signing up for an aspiring administrators group within um, the school district that you and I served in. And during that, after that, worked on some projects with some great educators um, and then determined at that time, I'll go ahead and, and sign up and go back to school and, and pursue my administrative licensure. And then we'll see what happens. And what happened was I was approached um, by the assistant superintendent of that school district as a teacher leader saying, I think that you could be a great assistant principal. Um, that may be a great next step for you. And then that quickly turned into, I became an assistant principal. And so that kickstarted my career in administration. Uh, and then it's interesting because as an assistant principal, I thought I would just be an assistant principal forever because I loved being an assistant principal. And sometimes you, you call on things for your future and sometimes they call on you. And uh, that's what happened with me, which ended up leading to me going from an assistant principal to being a principal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that transition. So you were assistant principal, was it three years, four years? Four years, yes. Mm -hmm. Four years. So four years, assistant principal, get called into another building to serve there. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure going in, you had kind of an idea of here's what I want the first 30, 60, 90 days mm -hmm. to look like. What, what was kind of your thought process as you were planning on becoming an administrator? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, is that how it actually worked out for you? So the circumstances were very unique in terms of the, the first 30, 60, 90 days for me, um, because anytime that a staff transitions from one leader to another, um, it's challenging, uh, it's uncomfortable. And I've always said that change can be sad, but not bad. Um, in this instance, change was very sad for the staff at Amy Beverland Elementary. Um, they lost their beloved principal and leader suddenly, um, and they needed a rudder is the best way that I could explain it to help steer, guide them, and get them through the turmoil while also looking at what's next. Um, so I always said that my 30, 60, 90-day plans would be all about um, people first and policy and practice next. Um, and, and so my first 30 days went as I expected. I scheduled a meeting with every single staff member in the building, met with key parent um, stakeholders, and I got to know them as people about their, their personal lives, their families, what they love about this school, um, what are some opportunities they, they see for change? What are traditions that they couldn't let go of that are really, really important to them? Um, and then I put all of that information together and that helped inform my next steps. And so once school actually opened and seeing the children, seeing the families, seeing the staff in action, seeing all the beautiful things they shared with me actually live out um, was amazing. My plan really didn't change because I came in with one goal in mind at that time, and that was to help get a staff through 
one of the darkest times in their professional and in most cases, personal lives. Um, and so I knew that I wasn't going to make any wholesale changes too quickly um, unless they were directly related to safety and related to something not being in the best interest of children. Um, and so I was able to honor how things have always been at the school while also looking for opportunities and strategically planning for what might be the best entry point in order to facilitate change because second order change can be a, a really challenging and, and long road. And so then that immediately led into who are my key people? How might I empower them? Because this is something that you just don't do alone. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It sounds like the, the relationships then were key moving forward. And it's not, it's not, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to make things my way. It's, it's really respecting mm -hmm. the building, respecting the people, respecting mm -hmm. the students, respecting the traditions that were going on in the building mm -hmm. and really developing relationships first. Only way you can do that. And like you mentioned, you had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the adults to say, Hey, here I am. I'm here for you. Let me know how I can support you. So how, how did you kind of build trust along the way? Because it's one thing to develop relationships, mm -hmm. but what about the trust part that has to come before you make some of those second order changes? Right. So obviously, you know, relationships being the foundation to the to a people and service industry, which I feel like education is, educational leadership is. Um, trust wasn't something that I just did. Trust was something that had to be built over time. Um, I shared my vision, my mission, my core beliefs as a leader while taking all of the information that they shared with me. Um, and over time, my actions aligning with, with my words is ultimately what built trust. Um, it was natural after having an administrator who had been in place for over 20 years. Um, to see someone coming in as a threat, a threat to their, their being comfortable, a threat to their norm. Um, and so when I explained to them, I have no intention of coming in and changing everything in your world. Um, and I stated that in my interview as well, I had to follow that through. So it became more than about getting the position and actually proving to them over time that my authenticity was very, very real um, and that my my actions that followed aligned with my words and, and my beliefs and my values. Mm. So you mentioned the previous principal being there over 20 years, mm -hmm. right? So there's a, a very steep tradition in what they were doing, how they were doing it, why they were doing it. At what point did you start to think, okay, I'm at a point with, with the staff now that I can start to influence things and kind of do things, you know, because going in, your number one goal was relationships, trust, getting to know everybody. At some point, though, you have to make that change as principal, saying, here's the way that we're going to start doing things now. How did you know when the staff was ready for some kind of an impact like that from you? I would love to be able to identify the moment that that happened. Um, however, if I, it's difficult to do, but if I had to put a year on that, it would be year three. I feel like after years one and two, um, year one was really just about getting staff through and getting students and families through um, because that principal 
meant the world to that staff, but also to the kids who were in the building, the families at home and the community as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I knew that I had to be mindful of all of those pieces and be very, very careful and strategic. Being strategic ended up being overtaken by instincts. And so I couldn't pinpoint when that happened because I even had to be mindful of making that transition, not only as a whole building, but even within individual teams, because based on their their experiences that were unique, one team may have been more ready than another team. Um, but I would say year three, the community started to embrace mm-hmm. me as their, their current and future leader, um, and the staff did as well. And then each year as students turned over, as staff has, have turned over, um, people came in that didn't know any different except for this is how we do things at Amy Beverland under Mr. Pennington's leadership. So um, the grieving process for staff, you think about the different stages of grief and how it manifests itself differently within your own family. Think about that within a staff of over 80 adults, a building with over 800 children and thousands of parents, and then an even greater and larger community. Um, And so I just had to really be mindful and careful in determining where people's starting points were, what their readiness levels were. And then, um, but about year three, it it really just became more of, this is how we're doing things here. but I felt confident in saying that not just because I am the leader, but because mm-hmm. I had embraced a lot of leaders within my building that had a voice and had stake um, in that second order change happening. So I always have a, a kind of a pre-questionnaire form I have guests fill out. And you mentioned that uh, employees show up when they know their leader cares for them. And what I'm hearing you say so far is relationships, conversations, patience knowing that this is a process, but you use the words that employees show up. Was that literal? Is that figural or is that both? Yes. And yes, certainly both. Um, Because showing up in a figurative sense means that they are, they're giving their all. They are doing what's best for children every day, not because it's the easy thing, but because it's the right thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But then Currently, I would also say the literal representation of that statement um, is we can't afford for anyone not to come and and fulfill their employee duties on a daily basis because there's really no one waiting to step in for them. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of things have magnified the staff shortages in many industries and education is no exception. Uh, And anytime somebody doesn't literally show up and then there is no one to pick up that job, for example, um, as a guest teacher, then that has a ripple effect and impacts the classrooms around that that classroom. And so Mm -hmm. I cannot control if people fall ill. I cannot control um, if if someone needs to be a way to take care of their family or other personal reasons. But what I can do is I can control how I minimize the impact and stress on everyone else that that situation causes. And 
I think being visible, being present, asking, how can I help? How can I support? What do you need to be successful today? Um, those are simple questions that open the door and provide the opportunity for a staff member to walk through it. So you use the word simple, like those are simple questions. The words themselves are simple, but the meaning behind it is so much more than being simple because you yourself have so many things going on. And just like other administrators, you know, I, I had a LinkedIn post the other day about how principals are in charge of PR for their building and they're in charge of cafeteria, like all of these things, professional development. So the role I think of the, of the, the principal is changing. It's not necessarily always just an instructional leader. There's all these other things that happen at the same time. But by asking those quote unquote simple questions, you're showing, hey, I'm a person, I care for you. What can I do to serve you right now? How can I help you? And that then I assume empowers teachers to know if I do need something, when I do need something, I know that my principal is here, Mr. Pennington's here to help me with whatever that case is. Is that right? Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned the instructional leadership part. That is so, so important, obviously, because instructional leadership leads to student outcomes. Um, ideally, a principal on paper should be 80% instructional leader and 20% managerial operations. And the reality is, is that we're 100% instructional leader, 100% managerial operations, and 100% responsible for the conditions that we create in our buildings. Um, and so mm -hmm. that goes back to the employee experience. I, I saw a great quote the other day, and I actually had to copy it and paste it in my weekly staff message. We're the, we're the stars of Amy Beverlin, so I send a constellation um, out each week with bullet points. Um, organizational culture is a living creature, and employees are the ones who feed it. And so culture is a real thing. Um, I'm not solely responsible for feeding that creature, though. Um, I can set the conditions and the parameters and, and provide opportunities for others to contribute. What they bring to the table and how they contribute is up to them. But at the end of the day, as you know, Eric, I have to be able to say I did everything within my power um, and within my control to influence the conditions to allow that person to be the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I talk a lot about lead indicators and lag indicators. Lead indicators are things that you can control. Lag is what happens as a result of that. Culture certainly is a lag indicator. You don't influence culture. You influence perceptions and behaviors and attitudes that then impact culture. So the whole idea of we create this environment is 100% right. And you mentioned 100% instructional, 100%, three different 100%. How, how does a school leader do that? Because with this idea of the employee experience, I talk to a lot of school leaders all over the country. So many school leaders are stressed. You mentioned that even before this, this uh, podcast as well. Like there's a high level of stress. There's a high level of demand. It goes back to we're PR and we're cafeteria and we're reset. We're all of those different things. So how is it that you're able to cultivate this culture? You're able to put forth some actions and some behaviors and some perceptions that lead to a good culture, but you yourself have to take care of yourself as well. What, what's that balance like for you? It's not great. Um, that's one area that I really, really struggle as a leader um, to practice what I preach. 
I talk about family first with mm-hmm. my staff and I model it. Um, I talk about taking care of yourself. I don't model that real well. Um, I'm unable or have been unable to find the true balance between taking time for me. I think that in taking care of me, I think as a servant leader, I am constantly worried about everyone else. Um, That's true Mm -hmm. professionally. That's true personally. And I, I have to give myself permission to take care of me because I'm no good to them if I'm not well. And um, I I preach that self-care is not selfish. However, I have a hard time turning that off and finding that balance, as you mentioned, because Mm -hmm. I feel so relied upon. And I stepped into this to serve and I can't live with the thought of letting people down. Um, and so I think that that balance to, to your original question and how do you do that as a leader, you plan, 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 but then you have to be agile and be able to be flexible that things don't always go according to plan. I talk to my staff a lot about failing forward. I, I would rather them try something out of the box and fail miserably and learn from that and move on mm-hmm. than to do what's safe and comfortable. And I need to do that as well. Yeah. I need to, to attempt to implement innovative ideas and, and processes and, um, and, and model that. And back to the original question, the balance for me is poor, um, but I still have some years left before I retire. And so uh, I have to continue to strive to that and take the words of wisdom from the giants before me or the, the individuals that I lead alongside within the district um, to figure out how to do that. Yeah, I'm I'm wrestling with the concept in my mind of what is the role of the principal and how much is it evolving, if any. So we, we grew up with the principal being the instructional leader. I'm curious if that's going to change over time because of the employee experience, because of staffing issues. So if I think about a principal as an instructional leader, 100% and a manager, 100%, it's not sustainable. You're feeling that on your side as well. I also know that principals look to to solve lots of different problems in lots of different areas, which is where the management part of this comes in. When I look at the numbers, I saw yesterday there are about 360,000 open positions in K-12 schools right now. Florida, for example, uh, end of August had over 8,000 open vacancies. Illinois, 88% of their school districts had a teacher shortage. So when I step back and say, we have a people problem in education, we don't have enough teachers, we don't have enough paraprofessionals, classified staff, how do we get to a point where that's no longer an issue? And a lot of school districts are really thinking about talent acquisition, grow your own programs, working with local universities, about 50% of new teachers leave in their first five years. So imagine if we were to plug that hole, what we can do for the teacher shortage that we have right now. Obviously, much easier to talk about than implement in action. But when I hear principals like you talking about just how much is on their plates, makes me step back and say, what can we do differently? How do we rethink maybe teaching positions, classified positions? My main lever right now that I'm considering in my own mind is the principal position. How do we create this employee experience where those people that come to school 
to teach, stay in the classrooms to teach. And it's, you, you do a fantastic job of empowering your staff, of listening to your staff, of having one-on-ones and conversations with them. I think those are the levers that we really need as a, as a profession to start moving a little bit more. And my, I guess my hypothesis is if principals step out of the instructional leadership, leadership position a little bit more, lean more towards the management and employee experience, that might be moving in the right direction. I don't know the implications of that though. What happens to instruction when the main person in the building is less focused on instruction, maybe empowers their staff to do more instructional leadership. I don't, I don't have any of those answers. That's what's going on in my mind right now. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts um, based on what you were sharing. And, and for me, when you look at removing the principal from the instructional leadership role, um, at the end of the day, the principal is responsible for equitable student outcomes. And the way that you achieve those is through the instruct quality of, of instruction that they receive at whichever tier, right? Um, and so it's important to obviously inspect what we expect. And when you and I were growing up, Eric, I, I know that I'm a little bit older than you, um, but when I was a child, my perception was the principal was a manager, a disciplinarian. Yeah. Um, I think when you and Especially I- Especially with students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when you and I were teaching, we saw that shift of administrator as instructional leader. That concept of the principal being the instructional leader, I actually feel is the, the correct role of the principal. Um, however, with that said, many schools like mine have an assistant principal. Traditionally, an, uh, an assistant principal is responsible for what? Behavior, student behavior. Yep, behavior. And so I view being a principal and having an assistant principal, but I view my assistant principal more as a co-principal. And I have to provide opportunities for my assistant principal to learn and to be able to operate in my capacity if I'm incapacitated. So when you think about it, I approve a lot of things that come my way, um, but I've created conditions within my office staff and a relationship with my assistant principal that she has to ask for my approval for something for decision-making far less than, than we did our first year together. She knows we have a common vision and common belief system, and she can make those decisions because if everything waits for the principal, it could be waiting a really, really long time. Um, I also think one thing that you mentioned about teacher shortage, so this isn't a new concept. Um, I think the pandemic just magnified that and colleges are producing 30% less education major graduates pursuing that field than before. And so I think one of the solutions, Eric, you were doing some hypothesizing, I think that not only do we have to hold on to the people that we get by valuing them, building that relationship, but we also have to empower them and feed them and feed their interest in continued professional growth. And the only way to do that is to model it and to support them and provide the staff learning necessary to continue to grow as our profession changes. Um, and then we have to be able to monitor that. And the way we monitor that is 
through formative and summative observations, evaluations, um, which observation has to be, I've got you, not I got you. And, and I think that's a big distinction. So teachers have enough pressure on them. Staff have enough pressure on them. Um, it's a tough, tough, tough job. However, for those who view it as a career and not a job, I find continue to be the most passionate, successful, and they need to be noticed and they need to be affirmed and they need to be recognized and they need to be appreciated. And so for me, that goes back to the showing up, showing up, knowing you're not alone and showing up and knowing someone has my back and, and then making sure that, that we retain the people that we do have. And I think I talked earlier about empowerment, um, distributing leadership and sharing leadership is a really important way to do that because then the employee experience becomes this, this isn't teaching is not my only role. Ensuring kids learn it's not my only role. I'm needed. I'm relied upon <clears throat> because I also have this leadership role. I also have input that I that is really really important to move us forward as an organization. And that's not just something that you can say. That's something you have to build and then sustain. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, you know the whole idea of culture, and then we think about. You know, differentiation in the classroom, for example, we look at our individual children, provide what they need. You have a staff of about 80, it sounds like, right? So as you're building your culture, how do you, how do you meet each of your adults, your teachers, your staff, where they are? How do you individualize for that many staff? Businesses, oftentimes, there's a manager of no more than eight people, right? There's a, there's a lot of, of research, if you will, or sayings about don't have a team bigger than you can feed with two pizzas, it takes 20 pizzas to feed a school. So how do you differentiate for the needs of each of your individual people? First of all, you can't differentiate the needs for the needs of your people if you don't know your people's needs. And so um, I personally am unable to do that alone. You just gave a lot of great examples of, of how that's nearly impossible. But what I can do is I can create a shared vision with a, a group of key stakeholders and staff members in my building who then we go out and take bites of that elephant um, together rather than than it just being me and rather than it just being my assistant principal. Um, so there's a divide and conquer mentality, but you can divide and conquer work, but be operating in very different directions. So it's important to have a shared vision as to why are we doing what we're doing? How are we going to do it? And then most importantly, what feedback are we going to provide? Because it can't be about checking a box. Um, even within one team of five, I may see low variance in terms of, um, you know, accessibility, guaranteed and viable curriculum. But when I go into that fifth classroom and I see they're focused on the same standard, but the experience for the child is very, very different than we have to be able to meet that person where they are and determine what is, is this a skill issue or is this a will issue? And then if it's a will issue, that's coming to me. If it's a skill issue, that could come to me, but I have the right people in place to ensure that that skill gap can be filled. And so it's actually no different than looking at my 810 students. 
So we have to have measures. We have to know where each individual child is, just like we do our teachers. We have to know what each individual needs, just like we do with our teachers. And then we have to create a plan, never alone, on how are we going to get from our current reality to our vision. And the further we are away from that, that rubber band model that just creates tension and at some point it snaps. And so as long as we're moving toward our vision, which is always equitable student outcomes, that part of that is it doesn't matter what classroom you're in. It doesn't matter which teacher you have. Um, and our role is to provide the supports for that individual to ensure they have what they need to make that happen. And then ultimately we never want to forget about like the children sitting in our classroom who are ready to be enriched. They're ready. They're already here. We still have a responsibility to move them forward too, but the amount of support they may need in order to move isn't the same. So I shared in kind of the, the pre-interview form, um, Principal Baruti Kefele, his definition of equity um, being that meeting people where they are and more importantly, as they are. We're not going to move people and change who they are at the same time. We need to get to where they are, know who they are, know what they need to move, and then leverage that. Mm -hmm. How aware have you found people to be to know that they need to move and then where they need to move? Or is that the role of the principal is? Because people don't know what they don't know, right? I would become a much better instructor after having observed you know, I don't know how many observations, hundreds of observations, I would become a much better educator as a, as a result of that. In my own classroom, I had a couple of observations per year, a couple of classroom visits, a little bit of feedback. So what are your thoughts on helping people understand that there are some next steps for you while also affirming where they are right now? Right. So I think it's important to recognize that while I'm responsible for making that happen, I'm not solely responsible for making that happen. Um, hmm. I have team leads that I have two teachers that share one classroom, one teaches 50% of the time, one coaches 50% of the time. And then I have another classroom with that same structure. And so my leadership team consists of those four teachers, myself, my assistant principal, and um, my exceptional learner team lead. And so what we do is we create that, that shared vision and then we go in and we go through coaching cycles. We calibrate what we're looking for and what feedback might look like and sound like. And then they're regularly doing that on a daily basis, going through a coaching cycle. Um, and you know, as a, as a great teacher that you were, that it's not about what you tell them. It's about the questions that you ask them that require them to think. And so no different than our kids. Um, we do the same thing with our teachers. So you have to understand what they were thinking at, at the time that they made this instructional move and then ask a question that helps them better understand that there could be a different way. And then when you see that moment, that's mm -hmm. your entry point. Have you thought about, have you mm -hmm. thought about trying this? Um, and we always bring it back to what was your intended outcome and did you meet it? And sure. if no, what might we do differently? So um, that also takes a high level of trust too, 
between the teacher and the coach who's actually has street cred because they are still teaching. And then another layer of that is making sure that every grade level or um, teaching team has a PLC leader, a professional learning community lead. And so we're thick in the work right now of moving just from our instructional coaches, having that ability to provide feedback and move, um, move our staff in positive directions to now pulling in our PLC leaders to try to calibrate thinking with them and look fors with them and next steps with them so that they can then lead that on a smaller scale in their weekly meetings. And then our plan after that, going way further than the question that you asked, I apologize, um, but I'm getting a little passionate about it because I'm excited. I, I, I see it having an impact already. Um, our next step is once our PLC leaders are on the same page and able to give feedback and lead their team as they're planning, then we're going to start pulling those individual teachers and taking them on our study walks too to look for and examine the practice that's happening around them, which creates self-efficacy, but it also brings us closer to having low variance and providing accessibility for our students. Opens up communication channels, right? So many questions that come from this, so many, oh, I didn't realize somebody else was doing it that way that comes out of that, so powerful. I would just add to that, that it also affirms the work that, they're, that they do Sometimes they realize that, oh, I didn't know that I do that so well until maybe I see a non-example. Um, and then it helps them better understand how they, can, how they can support their team. But it also takes away some of the fear and pressure. We often have five people walking into a classroom together here. And once they, they go on those walks with us and see that it's not all about what they're doing, it's about what the children are doing. And then they create those opportunities. And so it depersonalizes it a little bit in the sense that we're looking at practice, not you as a person. And, and so, cause there's enough pressure and stress in, in the world that, that we're in, in general and educationally that it removes some fear. And I think fear is important. Vulnerability is important. I've been taking notes. I think I heard the word empowerment or some version of that about six times from you. So as you think about what is the, what's the one strategy, what's the one action, what's the one thing that school leaders can take away from this conversation today? Is it this idea of empowering your teachers? Talked about a teacher leadership team. Again, the word empower came out several times. What's the one thing you'd want school leaders to take away from this conversation? Um, th there's a import, an important thing to me that always comes up that's around the word empowerment, but doesn't use the word empowerment, is the idea of school leadership and you could take out the word school and it just be leadership, that it's a team sport. You have to create the team that is going to best help achieve the shared vision that you've created. And, and Gandhi said a sign of good leaders, not how many followers that you have, but how many leaders you create. And so that goes back to empowerment because I can say, do this, I can get compliance, but can I get engagement? The idea of buy-in, I always say, I don't want buy-in. I'm not selling anything. I want ownership. And the way that you get ownership is through empowering. Um, empowering people to see their gifts and then to leverage those gifts and then to celebrate the successes that come with leveraging those gifts. So at the end, we like to share some celebrations of our guests. 
what what great things have been going on in your world you want to share? So personally, I have a celebration to share, and I, I hope that's okay. Um, I said my family is the foundation of who I am. Um, my oldest son just got engaged this past weekend. Oh, congratulations. Um, to a lovely, lovely young lady. And so we're looking forward to welcome, welcoming her into our family in 2024. Um, and then professionally, a, a celebration we're moving in a positive direction at Amy Beverland Elementary. Um, we have a focus on aligning our staff learning system so that our professional learning system so that it doesn't feel like everything is in isolation, that we can see the interconnectedness. Mm. Um, so we provide staff learning whole group training, and then we take that, and then the PLC leaders with myself and an instructional coach being part of the PLC, um, carrying that in and continuing the learning in the professional learning community, because too often a PLC becomes a team meeting and you're talking about nuts and bolts items and, but the L in PLC is learning. And so we want to, we want to extend that learning there. And then the third part of our professional learning system is taking learning walks or referred to as study walks and, and making sure that you have the right people on those walks to then inspect what we've been expecting, but also strengthen our understanding and grow in our understanding as we come back and we reflect um, on, on, and then it's very cyclical. Then it goes back to, based on that, what are our next steps as staff learning? Where, what are the trends in our building? And so we're, we're moving on that very early. I'm very proud of that because when you have that many moving parts and that many people who are helping you lead that, uh, that takes careful time and planning and and stamina. Yeah. Keep it up, Jared. You're doing some amazing work at Amy Beverland. Really appreciate your time today. Appreciate the time that you take to focus on the employee experience, to focus on the students in your building. You're making a difference. We appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for shining a spotlight on the employee experience because I, I think that's that's critical that we look at that and consider how might we improve that. All right. Thanks, Jared. Thank you, Eric. Our goal at the end of every episode is to have a student say thank you or tell a story about a teacher who has made an impact on them. Today, we have my son, Luke, saying thank you to Mrs. Cook, the school counselor. Hi, my name's Luke, and I want to thank our counselor, Mrs. Cook, for helping me through a time where I was nervous and scared. It was the first day of kindergarten. I got off the bus, and I walked in school. And I went to the, our cafeteria and got breakfast. Well, I ended up getting every single item there. And the lunch lady told me I couldn't because it was every item. It, so I got like chocolate cereal, chocolate milk, all that stuff. And I finished, I walked out of the cafeteria and I was in the fifth grade hallway. Well, our counselor, Mrs. Cook was there. And then she asked me if I was a kindergartner. I said, yes. So she pointed me towards my classroom and helped me find my classroom. I was very nervous and scared during that time, and I, I just didn't know what to do. Thanks, Mrs. Cook, for helping me out. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.